Hello and welcome to Home to Her, the podcast that's dedicated to reclaiming the lost and stolen wisdom of the sacred feminine. I'm your host, Liz Kelly, and on each episode, we explore her stories and myths, her spiritual principles, and most importantly, what this wisdom has to offer us right now. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hey, everybody, and welcome to today's show. So I'm going to start the show today with a little bit of a confession. I have been reading and studying a lot about the divine feminine over the last several years, but most of what I've learned is overwhelmingly from a white European perspective. And in some ways, this has felt appropriate for me as an individual, because this is my background, it's my heritage, and what I really was seeking when I began researching the Divine Feminine was some kind of meaningful connection back to my own ancestral homelands and the people that I descend from, who I know once must have had a deep connection to her. But the more I have learned, the more I have really felt in my gut that this Divine Feminine principle has to be present in some way in all corners of the world, that that she is there even now. She won't look the same or act the same everywhere. There are, after all, more than 7 billion of us humans at this point. And the idea of one path to spirit, to me anyway, is kind of silly. But her wisdom is available to all of us. And we learn so much and expand our own experience of her when we witness and honor all of her many faces all of which is why I am really thrilled to talk to my guest today. Lilith Dorsey hails from many magical traditions, including Afro-Caribbean, Celtic, and Indigenous American spirituality. While their traditional education focused on plant science, anthropology, and film, their magical training also includes numerous initiations in Santeria, also known as Lukumi, Haitian Vodown, and New Orleans Voodoo, And as soon as we get through this intro, I'm going to make sure I pronounced all that correctly. Lila Dorsey is also a voodoo priestess, editor, publisher of Oshun African Magical Quarterly, filmmaker of the experimental documentary Bodies of Water, Voodoo Identity and Transformation, and choreographer, performer for jazz legend Dr. John's Night Tripper Voodoo Show. They have long been committed to providing accurate and respectful information about the African traditional religions and are proud to be a published Black author of such titles as Voodoo and Afro-Caribbean Paganism, 55 Ways to Connect to Goddess, The African-American Ritual Cookbook, Love Magic, Orisha's Goddesses and Voodoo Queens, and the newly released Water Magic. Lilith Dorsey, welcome to the show and thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me on. Um, this is such a like important cause to me. So, you know, spreading the word about the divine feminine in a way that has been underrepresented. That's my life's work. So this is a joy. Thank you. Oh, I love it. And I, so I, my bad before, when we were chatting, before I hit record, I wanted to make sure <laughs> I listened. Actually, I went and listened online to make sure I was pronouncing everything correctly. But did I mess anything up in the intro? Haitian Vodun, I think that was it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, did I get it right? Did I say that right? No? It, it sounded a little slightly not right, but, but, <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm hearing. I've got a lot of pronoun because the the thing is, you know, Haitian Creole is very different than you know some of the other languages that we're talking about, and then you know it goes back to where they came from, Africa. So sometimes you're talking about French, and then some, you know, it's just it's a lot. It's a lot, and everybody's pronunciation is slightly different, and a lot of it's not written. So, yeah, it's an experience. <laughs> okay, well, that was a, that was a very gracious way of you saying, yeah, maybe not so good, but. <laughs> Okay, well, I did you my did best. way better than a lot of interviews I do. Some of them can't even get Lilith right. I'm just like, oh my gosh. All right. Oh, goodness. Oh, well, I'm, I'm so glad you're here. I have to say, I almost felt like uh, exhausted and overwhelmed just reading your bio because you've accomplished so, so much. It's, it's, it's incredible. Um, I'm just so impressed by your scope of your, you know, writing and, and choreography and, and film. It's, it's quite impressive. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I, I try and be humble about it, but when I hear it, I'm like, wow, that's a lot of stuff. Considering I feel like I don't do very much at all, you know, like, that's just who I am. I'm like, oh, geez, you know, <laughs> I could do more, I tell you. Yeah, it's yeah. funny. Well, I do tell um, guests sometimes that I, I think that's one of my favorite things about the show is I get to uh, reflect your awesomeness back to you. <laughs> so <laughs> thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> yeah. Well, so I often like to start the show with just getting a sense of people's spiritual upbringing um, and what you you know what they're exposed to as a child. Maybe what religious or spiritual practices were um, a part of your life. And I'm I'm wondering if you'd be willing to share a little bit about that. Sure. I, I usually start this question by saying that my parents really named me Lilith because I, I think a lot of people take the name these days, and, and but that's the one they gave me. And sort of as a nod, obviously, to the goddess, but uh, also after the film, ironically. So I sort of always knew that there was this divine feminine in my life, and, and they didn't follow any particular. They were sort of very eclectic kind of, of spirituality with them. They both had more traditional upbringings, but they got rid of that by the time I came around. And I went to Lutheran school just because I grew up in New York City and my parents didn't want to send me to public school because they thought that was a little bit intense. So <laughs> I did get all of that, you know, Lutheran Christian upbringing, you know, sometimes people will quote the Bible at me and I'm just like, well, I can do that too. I spent, you know, <laughs> a good eight, nine years doing that. So I'm very familiar with that. But, but for me, it was always just sort of recognizing that there was alternative spiritualities out there. And I always felt like a wish, which I remember casting spells on the living room when I was little and, and trying to come up with potions and incantations and all of these things, you know, mainly what I'd been exposed to through the media or through stories and stuff like that. And very early on, I really liked reading. And it makes me laugh now that I'm a wiser author because I remember as a young teenager, 12, 13, going into the wiser store and they had a rare book section and they used to throw me out all the time because I was a 12 year old kid wanting to touch the rare books. But I was like, I'll show you, you know, and then I grew up and now I, you know, I'm published with them. I didn't even know they had a store. That's kind of neat. They did back in the day. Not anymore. Back in the back in the day, like in the seventies and early eighties, they had a store. So uh, yeah, yeah, wow. it was. I don't remember. I don't even remember how long it was there. But you know, back then, it, it's funny now because there's so much witchcraft out there. There's so much alternative spirituality 
out there. But back then we didn't have the internet. You know, your, your Barnes and Noble would maybe have one classic text on witchcraft, you know, so there really was this search and it was part of the magical process that you had to go on sort of a quest for knowledge and you had to go into these deep, dark rooms. And it sounds a lot more exotic and exciting than it actually was really. <laughs> oh, this is smelly. And it's, you know, I got to take the subway to get there and people are weird, you know, but (laughs) that's what it was. (laughs) Oh, wow. Uh, Yeah, I was thinking, and I, I, yeah, it sounds pretty great to me. I I grew up in rural Georgia, so there definitely weren't any witchy bookstores anywhere near me. That would have been pretty cool to find. (laughs) Yeah, it was, it was, it had its moments, definitely, definitely. And then when I was in high school, you know, my best friend was a witch too. So we used to do, you know, card readings for each other and spells and things like that. So we were the only witches around. We were also, you know, probably only a handful of of black kids at the school. So that was another thing that we kind of bonded on. But again, black witches in the 80s, there was not that many of them, you know, so that was kind of problematic. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I I think I wanted to ask you, this is just like pure personal curiosity, but I've talked to a lot of guests now who uh, have these it's, I don't know if it's a calling or just interest as children, and I'm, I, I don't know. Do you, do you attribute that to past life experiences or maybe just your own purpose in life, just being really clear from a really young age? Or I think it's a combination of factors, or it was with me. You know, originally I felt a strong ancestral connection to the religion, and it's funny because I sort of reconnected with some of my relatives from my father's side through that path. And they'll say things to me like, oh, this is the same recipe your great grandmother used to make for holidays. Or, you know, it's like somehow the information was coming to me and I didn't even know. And then on another level, I think that, yes, there's past life information because I certainly remember things that didn't happen. You know, my mother's side of the family, her mother's maiden name was Holborn, which comes from the goddess Hell or Hella, or, Mm -hmm. you know, if we want to go into the whole (laughs) universe kind of thing. So there's that kind of strong spirituality. And actually on their Scottish crest, the, the thing was all our faith is in God. And I'm like, wait a minute, what God would like the Scottish Highlanders have been worshiping, you know, in the 1600s? (laughs) Not the same one (laughs) that we're talking about. So I was like, oh, okay. So it's like I had spiritual roots on both sides, which I think sort of nudged me towards being clergy. And then I also, I had a lot of traumatic experiences when I was young. I think there's a way in which certain spiritual talents come to the fore when you have trauma as sort of coping skills, really, especially at an early age when you're still forming, you know? Mm -hmm. So yeah, I think it's a whole bunch of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that thought is actually kind of comforting to me too, because it's almost like you don't really have to do anything except just, (laughs) you know, show up in this lifetime. I guess, I mean, you have to do something, but like you will, you'll, you'll be guided along that path, you know? Um, yeah, if, if you take the walk time it. to, yeah, listen, I think that's, that's the key for me, you know, because there's a difference between listening to what's, you know, happening and then hearing what you want to hear. And I think that's getting out of your own way and those kinds of things are hard for me, you know, mm-hmm. especially when I was beginning. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So was there a point um, that you feel like where you you recognize the divine feminine as a spiritual force or either her presence or absence or um, 
did was it just kind of naturally show up with some of, of what you were experimenting with and, and exploring when you were younger? Well, I think Lilith, obviously, you know, and, and I say this to people now when they want to name their kids Lilith because it's getting very, you know, popular and a lot of other goddess names, you know, saying it, the power of naming is something that's ancient and just it's it's almost like an invocation so in a way you're having sort of little mini invocations your whole life and that's really what i felt like because i felt like lilith's energy was with me from the very beginning and then i had an aunt who uh was living with us when i was younger who was mentally ill and i remember being you know two years old and coming into the living room and she would do this thing and start singing the marie laveau song and talking about walking through the tombs and whatnot so i'm two years old and i'm like what's going on you know <laughs> like this looks like fun. She's doing a little <laughs> dance number. She's talking about some exotic place called New Orleans, you know? So I felt like even if I hadn't noticed it, there were external factors that were coming at me about my spirituality and connection to the goddess in so many different ways. Mm, I love that. Well, and I wonder if you'd be willing to talk a little bit about your name for listeners who, I mean, you know, it's always hard to know who's listening. I don't know how deep their level of understanding about the divine feminine is, but maybe you could talk a little bit about Lilith and, and her energy. I, I, I'm a big fan of Lilith personally. Yeah, she's one of the most ancient goddesses that there are. I mean, technically it goes back to ancient Sumer, Babylonia area, Fertile Crescent, thousands and thousands of years old. She's even, depending on what tradition you're in, she's, you know, in the Bible as Adam's first wife, sort of this kind of goddess slash demon that would not lie beneath him that that's the actual words that are in the text depending on the translation so there's this whole thing about her not wanting to be you know subsumed by masculine power not wanting to take the subordinate role just because she was a female so that gets demonized over the years there's a lot of really negative stuff in uh, the Talmud and and Jewish texts about how she's you know steals babies and causes miscarriages and I, I really think this was an attempt by mainstream religion to literally demonize the sacred feminine because when we look back yes okay we're associating her with midwives and things like that so it's easy to see how they flip the script to this negative lowest common denominator as my priestess likes to say and turned it into instead of helping women give birth she's causing them to have problems in birth she's causing these problems and that would that would scare people and mm -hmm. they'd stop worshiping her and then they destroyed a lot of her sacred items and a lot of her you know things like that have been really ripped down because they didn't want people recognizing this divine feminine so she's great though so she's sort of been reinvented and and for a new millennia and with things like you know the Lilith Fair, which is a big giant music fair. There's a journal, yeah. I think, of uh, Jewish feminism called Lilith that came out in the 80s. I remember walking by, I went to NYU, I remember walking by their offices <laughs> with this giant Lilith sign hanging out and all like, what's going on? You know, <laughs> so people are sort of really reclaiming her. My good friend, Michael Herkus, has a book called about the glam witch and he calls that the great lilithian arcane mysteries so i just love that oh yeah <laughs> you know he talks about just getting in touch with that sensuality and that being the key to power and not something that we should malign but something that we should cultivate and nurture oh i love that 
Uh, you know, what's funny is that I, I think I was in college when <clears throat> Lilith, Lilith Fair uh, was happening and I didn't know. I, I, I came to this later. I didn't know. I had no idea that that was the name. Yeah of a goddess. I just thought it was like Lil- Lily or something. <laughs> that was silly. I thought it was like, oh, this is like a soft woman-y thing. <laughs> if only I had known. <laughs> That's great. That's great. I love well, that. yeah. And I wonder, I mean, given all that, I don't know when you learned all this about Lilith, but what it must have been like to grow up with that as a name and that story. It's, it seems pretty empowering to me. It was. It was intense. Although probably when I was little, all I did was get annoyed because nobody got it right, you know. So, <laughs> and nobody knew who she was, and nobody back then nobody knew what it was, you know. And today, it still I think comes with its own baggage. I met a teenage girl named Lilith, and she said she got into a cab once, and she got thrown out when she told the cab driver what her name was. It was like, I'm not riding with demons in my car. Oh you know, my god! Ridiculous. Yeah, I know. I know. Who would throw a teenage girl out on the street because their name is Lilith? It's just messed up. Wow. But yeah, that's how people are sometimes. That's yeah, incredible. Yeah. Mm. Well, I'd, I'd love to talk to you. So the book that I just finished reading that you wrote was uh, Orisha's Goddesses and Voodoo Queens. And I'd love to talk to you a little bit about that. I, um, it was such a wonderful book. I learned uh, quite a lot. So I thank you for writing it, first of all. Um, but one of the things that I was... Well, a couple things. So I, I realized I knew very little about um, any of the African spiritual traditions. So it was super helpful for that. But um, I, I was also introduced to a lot of words and language and terminology that I just wasn't familiar with. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about some of that. So um, Orishas, for example, is this a word? This is a word for a deity. Is that correct? Yes. Yes. I mean, some people don't like to call them gods because a lot of people in these systems still worship one God, still have very Christian type practices in that area. And then this is carried out sort of separate from that. I don't want to say one is better than the other, but there's a lot of things within Christianity that you can only have one God. So that's why I don't just say they're gods. But for most people, especially I think coming from a pagan or witchcraft background, they do see them as gods and goddesses because they're used to a sort of multi-dimensional worship system. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And that's really what this is, a multi-dimensional worship system. I just don't like to put that European word God or goddess on it because Orisha literally means Ori, which is head, and it comes sha, which comes from the root word ashe, which is our sacred energy, our power. Everything has ashe. You know, you have the ashe of fire, the ashe of the river, the ashe of, and and really that's what the Orisha are. They're the pure divine ashe of these sacred things in nature. That the where the head comes in is it, it's said that one of them owns your head. Throws so through costly and um, (laughs) very detailed divination, you can find out which one owns your head and that will help guide you through stories and things like that and and sort of tell you why your existence is the way that it is. Hmm. Interesting. I know that sounds complicated. All right. Let me give you an example. (laughs) Yes. I I love examples. Okay. I am Omochun, which means... Like I said, Omo is another word for head. So it means 
child of Oshun. So Oshun owns my head that, and she's the Ashe of the river of sweet, fresh water. She's also the Ashe of beauty and love and marriage. And there are stories called Patakis, which are the sacred stories that we sort of learn by. What happens is when you get divination, the answer comes back with a story. And they tell these stories specifically for this situation in your life or that situation in your life. So one of the ones I like to explain about Oshun is that she was poisoned. There's a story that she was poisoned. And if you give her any offerings, you have to taste it first. Mm. So for me, this sort of made sense when I found that out because I'm very shifty shady about whose house I will eat at, trusting somebody else to cook for me. I have a very weak stomach. Like if something's one day past the expiration date, it has to go in the garbage or I'm going to be really sick. So it's like, this is influencing my character and the way I walk through the world. You know, I have a book about love magic that makes sense you know i just have another book about water magic also makes sense (laughs) you know so all these and i would never have picked that for me but then when i thought about it i was like oh yeah i've been doing love spells my whole life i've lived near the water my whole life i mean even i just moved from brooklyn but even when i was living in brooklyn i lived right next to where the river goes out into the ocean here i live right next to the canal which joins the mississippi river which flows out into the gulf so it's like there's just all of these things are always in my presence. And I can recognize that now. It's not like, oh, what's all this water doing here? No, it's doing, it's here because this is my character. I love that. And, but you can only figure this out through divination. You need to work with somebody to understand this. Yes. Yes. And it really, unfortunately with quarantine, you know, it has to be done in person. There's a lot of lesser than, you know, whatever people online trying to take advantage of that. And it really, it has to be done in person and it's done with three different priests usually. So you sit there and then it's kind of a give and take process where they figure out who they think you are and then they do the divination. And then you, you know, have another part of the divination that determines whether or not that's a yes or a no. So it really is a give and take between the three priests and also whoever's finding this out. So it's really complicated. It doesn't cost a fortune, but it usually costs a few hundred dollars. Wow. And is this, so this is, uh, I think it just did your background is really interesting to me because you've got the, the pagan background. You talked about the um, uh, Native American indigenous right. spiritual traditions. And then this, I mean, is there a path that feels primary for you or does this all just kind of blend together in a beautiful soup or whatever analogy we want to use there? Well, I was talking about some of my ancestors. You know, obviously I have native ancestors and I have Scottish ancestors and I have a whole bunch of, you know, sort of unknown black ancestors due to the, you know, torturous history of this country. So I may never know about that. And for me, I mean, if they can come together in one person, I think they can come together as part of one person's spirituality. And I would really feel like I was doing them a disservice if I didn't honor them in some way. You know, I can honor each of them separately on the ancestor altar. I can honor them with different types of practices. For me, I don't like the phrase separate but equal, but that's kind of what it is. You know, it's not like, oh, this side of my family was better than this side of my family. They both have skills. They both have, you know, talents that they can pass on to me. And I want to respect that and honor that in whatever way I can, Mm. you know, and, and the reason I ended up initiating in so many different traditions was it really was situational. You know, I was doing workshops on things like tarot and astrology and all this beginner witch stuff. And, and I finally came across 
my first priestess, Priestess Miriam, who runs the Voodoo Spiritual Temple here in New Orleans. And it really felt like home, you know, it was the first person that I felt like really could be a family member. You know, she's like my mother. She's my godmother. I love her, you know, (laughs) and she Mm. loves me. Hopefully if I don't, you know, (laughs) make her upset. And (laughs) it's nice. I mean, for some of us who didn't have the warmest atmosphere growing up, it's nice to have a spiritual family to -hmm. depend on because, you know, and it really is a family. I can say anything to her and she can say anything to me. And, and, you know, if we need help, we help each other out. And sometimes we don't always like each other, you know, but that's what happens. You know, you Mm got to work together. Yeah. I love the idea of all the blending of the traditions too. Uh, It's, I've been thinking of, um, like the word that comes to mind for me lately is multiplicity, you know, how yes. Yes. Uh, so many things can coexist and that that is, at least in my experience in working specifically with the divine feminine, more so than anything else I've done, has, has been an invitation into that and to say, yes, this is true and this is true. It's not either or. It's always a how can, how can, how can more of this kind of fit? Um, so yeah, I'm not trying to draw these, you know, black and white lines. Definitely, you know, and for me, I think that it works well as long as I don't try to, you know, a, a lot of, especially the ATR, Arisha and Loa, they need separate spaces, they need separate services, you know, it's not about, oh, well, I only have this one corner of my house, so I'm going to put everybody together, because just like people, they don't necessarily all get along, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> But also like people, they can understand that you might have a need for this person or this energy or this God or goddess or lower or Orisha in your life. So they can tolerate it as long as you give them their proper respect and, you know, just honor them the the way that they were honored for. We're we're going back thousands of years here. You know, there's an Orisha Shango who's actually, they can find written records that he existed in 4,000 BCE. So we're talking about, we're going back 6,000 years of people doing things to honor these Orisha continuously. So they get very set in their ways. You know, I mean, I do something for a month and it's like, oh, I feel like I've done it my whole life, you know, but (laughs) they've been doing stuff for 6,000 years. So And that's why it's so important to have a teacher because they'll help guide you on the way. And it's, it's because there's so much you mentioned my newsletter, the Oshun newsletter that we started uh, back in the early, I think it was the early nineties. And the person who wrote my reviews, John Gray, he wrote a 600 page annotated biography in eight point type of all the different books (laughs) that he could find up until that point, which was like 1990, about the ATRs. And he told me he could study this for the rest of his life and never be done. So this is someone who wrote a 600-page book in eight-point type, told me that they could study it for the rest of their lives and never be done. And it's true. So that's why we have people to guide us. Maybe we don't necessarily need, you know, 600 pages of information. But if I mentioned with the, the spirits and stuff, if I know that I'm Oshun, then maybe I need all the Oshun information I can get. And then my my priest or priestess can guide me to find that information and where I need it. Maybe I need this today. Maybe I need something else today. It really is like both food and medicine where you get what you need to nourish you and to heal you and to put you on your proper path. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you also mentioned the term, uh, well, the word, uh, is it Loa or Loa? How do I Loa. say that? Loa. Okay. Loa. Yeah. Um, is that, 
And and is this also this is the same refers to deity or maybe not the word god goddess but same same concept? Yeah, because in I mean Haiti's just like these other countries that I mentioned, and a lot of them are very Christian. They have what they call Bandu or good God, which is seen as the primary God. And they see the Loa as something that are worshiped and gone to and sort of asked to share their lives on a day-to-day basis. Whereas Bandu is sort of a higher, not really deus ex machina, but sort of a higher force that's not going to trouble themselves with, oh, I lost my job or, oh, you know, uh, my foot hurts or something like that. (laughs) Mm-hmm. <laughs> because Bandu is busy. So, you know, maybe you'll go to Ogun because he's a healer and a doctor and a surgeon if you have a health issue. Or maybe you'll go to the lower Urzuli if you have an issue with love or you have an issue with Urzuli Danto is particularly good for, you know, people who are in an abusive situation, you know. So each of them have their own niche and also influenced by you know, the temple that you belong to, the family that you belong to, both blood family and spiritual family, different ones will step up to help you in, in certain situations. Mm. Yes. And how is, the, how is the divine feminine seen then in, um, in some of these traditions? So is, it, is she kind of a counterpart to the masculine energy or... Um, you know, right. If you go back, like, at least I know from on European side, if you go back far enough, you kind of find this overarching concept of mother of all right. Great mother. And then as you go forward in time, you start to see the split. You've got the divine feminine, the divine masculine. And I'm wondering, um, in the African and the Haitian traditions, if that, if that's the same or if they're they're yeah, if they're kind of counterparts to each other. Well, when you go back, you definitely do see four mothers. I write in the Orisha's book about deities like Nanabodoku yes. or Mamiwara, who are seen as ancient foremothers, grandmothers, primal almost, you know, because they don't even speak the same way sometimes. And these are something, you know, we look at it back, yet they do come from Africa. There's a wonderful documentary by Jaiman Hansu called In Search of Voodoo, where he, he talks a lot about Mami Water in his home country of Benin, where a lot of the original voodoo practices came from. Um, I'm talking now about all different African traditional religions, but the Haitian voodoo or voodoo came primarily from Benin. So that is why you have differences, like they're called Loa instead of Orisha. Yeah. They also had different indigenous people when they got there, and there was some blending with the indigenous people in the area. So that influences the character of the religion. It also influencing the character of the religion is the language. You know, in Benin, they do not speak <laughs> Spanish. Mm. And in Haiti, they speak Creole, which is influenced by, it's much closer to French. It's not like French, but it's because it was, you know, occupied by French people. There is a French influence on their language. So all of these things influence the character of the religion. But there are some similarities because when you look at Benin and you look at the Yoruba kingdom, which is where Lukumi and, and the Santeria, which is the, you know, common, not right name for it. Mm. Uh, <laughs> that comes from Nigeria and the Yoruba people. So again, it's influenced by the character of the Taino people when it came to Cuba and Puerto Rico. So there's, again, a blending, but there are similarities in what they were doing. It's complicated. Sorry. (laughs) It's all, it's all good. No, and it's fascinating to learn. And I, I I think I want to just give a moment to, cause I, 
I, I know that you mentioned this in the book too about Santeria not being an appropriate term or an accurate term. And I wonder if you right. just, I'd just give you a, a chance to address that. Yeah, I think that's just what it got called, you know, and unfortunately, that's not the right term. It's usually called La Regla Lacumi, uh, which Regla, obviously, coming from king, queen, like royalty, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and Lacumi being the place where it came from, you know, back in Africa, you know, we talk about the Lacumi language, the Lacumi people. So that is where that comes into it. Sometimes you'll hear people say that they're in Santo or they're with the saints. That's another way of saying it. That's not saying Santeria, but it's pretty much, you know, now with the the era of everybody gatekeeping and everything like that, you know, if you say Santeria, people will immediately jump down your throat. You don't even know what to call the religion, you know? So Mm. (laughs) this is really the the proper thing to call it would be to call it Lakumi or, or Santo or something like that. So you'll hear me say that, but it just gets, you know, the media really, I think did a lot to demonize all of these religions and this has been most people's exposure to it for so many years so the same way that we're talking about the divine feminine being demonized we're talking about all these african religions being demonized and brought down to the lowest common denominator and focused on hexes and curses and evil and and, but when you think about it they were religions of people who were enslaved who lived in occupied countries who were separated from you know their homeland and their families and obviously there's going to be negative magic because you're fighting for your life you know people are are whipping you and you're in chains and you know you're going to have a lot of protection spells and you're going to have a lot of get rid of this person who just beat me spells you know so a lot of that i think was a holdover because they needed those things. You know, there's less spells about how do we get along with people during the holidays and (laughs) more spells about how do we deal with these things? Because there is a a lot of negativity in our lives, you know, then and now. So this is why I I think, and people, people pick up on that, obviously, you know, it's much more exciting to watch a movie where people are, you know, making zombies and, Mm -hmm. and all of this kind of thing is happening or, it also gets highly sexualized. That has nothing to do with the religion either, actually. Sex is kept very separate from things in the religion, but it makes a better film or a better television show to talk about these things attached to it. Yeah, that's such a good point, too. I, I'm also, um, I've also been reading a book about um, uh, witchcraft and witches and pagans in the early Middle Ages. And in Europe and the, um, the, you know, just the, the, the fear and the, the, the terror, uh, campaigns against women. And really this was the divine feminine that they were attacking, right. You know, went on for hundreds and hundreds of years. And, um, then you, you have a bunch of white settlers who, uh, are descendants of these campaigns of terror who are incredibly rigid in their own religious beliefs. That actually makes a lot of sense to me. Why, uh, they might also look at something and, and label it demonic or bad. Of course, of course. And I, I think this is why you get a lot of conjure a lot of hoodoo especially here in the united states using things like the bible because it was the only book they were allowed to have as enslaved people so if this is the only book you have it's going to be a spell book Mm -hmm. you know and Mm -hmm. and there is power in the language of it so they realize that and they utilize that in a way that worked for them 
I, I actually really love that. And that was one of my favorite things that I learned from reading your book was just this uh, melding and blending of like saints and, uh, you know, Catholic, <laughs> Catholic practices and, and prominent, you know, I don't know, Mary and, and all of those folks and, and those showing up in these traditions too. I actually thought that was really kind of cool. Well, I think for a lot of us that that was the, the early exposure that we had to these things. You know, I love to tell the story about when I was, I don't even know why they did this, but when I was four years old, they made me the Virgin Mary in the Christmas show <laughs> and they put me on stage and they gave me a real baby. Wow. And I sat there for two hours with this real baby and I, I knew I had to just sort of keep it entertained so it didn't cry. I, I was very conscious of I was on stage, you know, because I come from a family of theater people. So I knew I couldn't mess up on stage. Like that would have been the worst thing I could do with hundreds of people watching me, you know. So, <laughs> but my mother and I were talking about the other day. I did. I kept this baby quiet, you know. And for me, this whole, you know, that was one of the first experiences I had, especially with with having performance and ritual with the divine feminine under the guise of Mary, because this is what I had, you know? Yeah. And I think that's a lot of people have said this rings true for them that, you know, Mary and this kind of sort of not really worship, but knowledge of her having this sacred feminine energy was something that was allowed within the Christian religion. And it's something they really latched onto. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you see that. Uh, you know, I did. I grew up in a, a Protestant household, so I didn't really get any. I mean, it just wasn't much exposure to Mary, except you know, in the nativity scenes, like you're describing. Um, but I, I, I personally feel like I've seen it um, more so in like Guadalupe, for example, right. or yeah, like you, you really. I feel like you can really see and feel the connection back to the Divine Mother and the way she must have been imagined before Christianity got a hold of her. And definitely. And I love the fact too, I mentioned this in the book, that the, the saint statues were hollow inside. So you could put the ritual herbs and, uh, and stones and all those things up inside the statue so that when you were looking at the altar, yes, maybe it was Mary, but you also knew it had the sacred shells for Yamaya in there, or it had, you know, all these other things that were inside it that had that ashe that I was talking about before, the sacred energy of the Arisha or the Loa. So for us, that means it really is them. And then that other thing just becomes a container, you know. I love that. I, I've, yeah, I loved reading that and learning that. I also had guests on earlier, actually my very first podcast guests have written a book about the rosary and they've described the rosary oh, nice. and the, yeah, the practice of praying the beads is like a, I think they called it a stowaway, you know, because the beads are far older than Catholicism and using prayer beads is a, a way to connect, you know, so something that kind of got snuck in. <laughs> right. Uh, yes. Right. And, and you could also hold it in the church and, you know, maybe be talking to your other version of, <laughs> of the divine feminine and it, it looks totally appropriate and okay. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think unfortunately a lot of this stuff did to be hidden and that was for safety reasons. You know, I took a workshop with Baba John Mason, who's uh, one of the founders of the Yoruba Theological Seminary back in, I believe, the 70s. So he's definitely an OG elder who has a lot of respect. And he said it was secret because we feared for our lives. You know, there were laws against the religion. People were persecuted. People are still persecuted. 
you know, even when I was coming up in, in the 80s, you know, like I, I know plenty of people who had their kids taken away because they were a witch or, you know, let alone practice some of the ATRs that that really had the worst reputation of all. Mm. And uh, are you saying ATRs? What, what is that? African traditional religions. Oh, it's got a, it's got a um, acronym. Thank you for yes. clarifying that. <laughs> I think you said that before and I was like, I was, I was going back through my head, ATRs, do I know what this is? Okay, I got it now. <laughs> so yeah, it basically encompasses some of the things that we're talking about. So Lakumi, Haitian Vodou, New Orleans Voodoo, Hoodoo, uh, Candomblé, Macumba, down in Brazil, you know, all mm-hmm. of these. Mm-hmm. So you, in, in your book, um, the one that I was, I was referring to, before I'm Arisha's Goddesses and Voodoo Queens. I know you write about several of these. Well, actually, you know what? I didn't ask you to explain Voodoo Queen. What does that mean? That's a little different, right? Than a deal. Oh, okay. Well, this goes back into what's the difference between, you know, is there a sacred feminine? And that's one of the things I think that I really loved about it when I joined the religion. If we look at New Orleans Voodoo and to some extent Haitian Voodoo, it really is defined by the mambos or the priestesses. Mm-hmm. And there is a lot of feminine power that's still in place within the structure of the religion. You know, I mentioned Marie Laveau. Her grave is mm-hmm. the second most visited in the country you know, second only to Elvis. So, mm. <laughs> and I keep saying Graceland has a bunch of other stuff there. Maria Bo's grave doesn't have anything else there, but yet people still go to recognize this voodoo queen. And she really is famous. And she really has sort of stayed in the public mind since the 1800s. And that's such a beautiful thing to me. And we, there were voodoo queens that came before her. There are voodoo queens in the city now that I talk about, like Priestess Miriam, who I mentioned. So it really is a way in which these women run their own spiritual organizations, spiritual houses, home for temples, depending on what tradition you're in or what you're going to call them. But they, you know, they have divination, they have rituals. They have spiritual services. They have everything, really. They're sort of a spiritual one-stop shop for the community. And it is something that maybe a hundred years ago, I mean, it's still hard for people of color to get adequate medical care in this country. Mm -hmm. But a hundred years ago, it was almost impossible. So they did operate as spiritual doctors for the community. And it was something that was primarily the domain of women. I'm not really sure why, but I think it's a wonderful thing. And I love that that's sort of stayed in the mind's eye. Some people think it's because of, again, just the structure of enslaved peoples that the men were out in the fields and the women were home taking care of the children so they could tell them the sacred stories. And and some of these got transformed into some of the folk tales and things like that. And and that was how they kept part of the tradition alive. I mean, that's just a theory and nobody will really know for sure, but that seems to be part of what's happening. Hmm. So I, I kind of feel like I want to back up for a second and just ask you, because you've, you've got such a beautiful, broad, um, it seems like you've got, just got a beautiful, broad, you know, spiritual practice and, and there's lots of um, different, well, maybe because you mentioned your connection with water, but I'm, I'm visualizing rivers sort of flowing through, you know, or flowing yeah. in. I, I wonder how, how you experience the divine feminine, like who is she? to you. And I recognize the limitations of language here. So. Yeah, there are some limits of language. Even, <laughs> even, even if my first Santo initiation, you get uh, 
an Eshu or an Eligua. And what they told me was mine was all about words. And I was kind of salty because I was like, I wanted it to be all about dance. I was like, what? Mm. How did I end up with words? But knowing <laughs> me, that completely makes sense because I always have a bunch of words. So how do I see it? Uh, I see it in a lot of different ways, really. Like I said, they don't they're separate, but they are still ever present the same way like water or blood. It's, it's, you know, I've got a bunch of different things in the DNA of my blood, but they all come together in my body. You know, there's a bunch of different, I have a friend, uh, which Dr. Uchu, who wrote a book about Harriet Tubman, and he loves to talk about the Mississippi and how some of the, he's from Canada, some of the tributaries from where he is in St. Catharines in Canada, where the last stop of the Underground Railroad was, some of those rivers flow into what then later becomes the Mississippi and then flows all the way down here. And, and it's so interesting interesting to me that yes, little different pieces, you know, maybe this river over here will have these fish and maybe this one will have this flora and fauna and this one will have this character from where it is. But then they all sort of come together and make the mighty Mississippi, like they say, which comes down here and empties out in the Crescent City into the Gulf. So it's lots of different things. But for me, I, you know, I start out with the ancestors I have my God kids do it every morning. I did it every morning for many, many years. Now, sometimes I do it in the morning. Sometimes I do it later in the day. But <laughs> I start out with that practice, remembering them, remembering all those who have gone before me, leaving them offerings, lighting candles, all of those types of things. Uh, in some traditions, they do separate the men and women on the ancestor altar. So I didn't want to throw that out there for people because I think that's just an interesting concept that's, that some of these ATRs mm -hmm. will do that, mm -hmm. <laughs> how that manifests. But for me, it really is different that there is a different kind of energy. And a lot of these feminine Arisha have sort of come and helped me be who I am. And I give so much thanks and respect to them on a daily basis. So that happens. And there's other things too, that I think come together. It really is situational for me. You know, I run my own spiritual house. We're a New Orleans voodoo type house, which is primarily what we do. But that is a melting pot as well, just because there were so many different, you know, there was the Choctaw and there were indigenous people that were here that influenced the religion. And then the city had Irish immigrants and it had Span it was Spanish at one time and it was French at one time. And then there were English people here and then there were Americans here. And it's, there's just so much that happens like in a gumbo that comes together <laughs> to make it delicious. And, th and that's kind of how I see it, that there are all these different things that are coming in. And it makes some people angry, you know, again, with the gatekeepers, they're like, well, how can you put this and this? And I'm like, well, that we did it. You know, we've been doing it for hundreds of years. So you, if you're going to get upset about it, go back hundreds of years, because this is how it's been done here for hundreds of years. And it's, it's not really like reinventing it on a daily basis. It's just honoring what came before. And, the, and that's how I see it. And a lot of what came before was feminine, especially in the form of the voodoo queens like Marie Laveau and Sanité Dede and, and some of the Leafy Anderson, some, a lot of these people that came before this whole litany of, of great women that sort of did what they could to keep the spirituality and the people alive here in the city. So that's something I honor every day. And I, I try and pass that along. Mm, I love that. 
Well, and I think it, your spiritual house is named, is it um, Maman Brigitte? Did I say that right? Yes, Maman Brigitte, yes. Maman Brigitte. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about her? I loved reading about her. I love Maman Brigitte, and I, I always did. And we struggled with a name for a really long time. Uh, <laughs> and finally, my God, kids were just like, we're calling it Maman Brigitte. We do Maman Brigitte all the time, and that's what we're doing. So Maman Brigitte, again, some people have argued the history about her, but she is a Loa from Haiti. She is seen as the wife of Baal Samdi. So she is honored as the first female grave in every cemetery. So it's kind of like that earliest female, the first person to go in the ground, she becomes Mama Brigitte. She has the ashe and energy of the feminine dead, all those grandmothers that came before, all the way back to our first feminine ancestor at the beginning of time. So she connects with that primal energy. But she's also slightly influenced, especially here in New Orleans, by the fact that we had a lot of Irish immigrants to the city, Irish workers mm -hmm. that worshipped St. Bridget or Brige, as some people might know the goddess names. And a lot of those things came into it. So it's not the same. I've had people mistakenly say I said it was the same, but it is influenced by the fact that because of the socioeconomic factor as well, a lot of these Irish people were living in the same places as the black people and the people of color here in the city. So they were having these ceremonies. They were inviting people over for drum ceremonies and feasts, and they were bringing their knowledge with them. So there was, again, hundreds of years ago we're talking about, but there was a blending of some of these traditions. Mm -hmm. And for us, I think because she was that ancestor, because she was that feminine ancestor, because we could connect with her, that's why we decided to be a mama and Brigitte house. And she really does have great blessings, but you have to stay still and you have to be quiet and you have to listen because some of what she says kind of comes in muffled hush tones, like it's almost underwater, like she's bringing the knowledge from Africa under the water to tell us what the truth of our beginnings and our middles and our ends really are. So there is that whole element of, of what goes into her. But And then I had some god kids that were British traditional Wicca. So they sort of fit right in because they'd already been dedicated to Breeze. Like we all had some sort of special little kind of connection to the other manifestations of Bridget, Breeze, St. Bridget throughout our lives. So I think it made it very interesting as sort of coming together. You know, when we look, Mama Brigitte doesn't have anything to do with sacred wells, but when we go back and look at Brige, she's all about the sacred water. There's, mm -hmm. you know, writing the water book. I mean, even before I went to Ireland, I thought there was, oh, I'm going to go to Brige as well. And people started laughing at me like, there's a whole bunch of wells throughout Ireland <laughs> right. dedicated to Brige. I was like, oh, okay then, you know, and there's a whole bunch of, when we do the veve for her, it kind of looks like some of those carns that they have, the, the graves, the passage tombs, people are familiar with Newgrange, maybe, yeah. that they have in Ireland. And, and these structures are, if you look at Newgrange, that's earlier than the pyramids. So, you know, people have been building graves, tombs like this for thousands of years. And when you look at the veve or the ritual drawing for her in Haiti, it kind of looks like that with the stones piled up. And I was so fortunate when I got to go to Ireland and spend some time with friends of mine. They're like, oh, we know where there's a passage tomb and you can get right in it. So we crawled right in it. <laughs> wow. It 
was great. It was great. They're like, I, I guess they do rituals and stuff there. They've been there for a really long time. So it was beautiful. And uh, I loved it. But again, that, that just sort of reinforced my connection to this ancient feminine energy. Oh yeah, I love it. And I, you mentioned the Beve. I wonder if you would talk about that a little bit because I had no, I had no idea what this was until I read your book, and then I was just fascinated. They're so, they're, they're just really lovely. And they're I, sacred symbols that we have in voodoo. And and again, it's it's folklore because none of this is written down. And and folklore is even really not like a nice word. So I wish we had a better word for that. But it's mm-hmm. sort of embellished history that's been passed on through stories throughout time, and. Some people say that they started because they noticed that after ceremonies, there were certain patterns that formed in the dirt from the dancers, from the participants, from the animals that might have been present at some of these outdoor ceremonies. And somebody got the idea, hey, well, if every time we call on this loa, it makes this pattern, let's see what happens if we put this pattern on the ground before we start the scent ceremony. So what started happening was they started making and expanding on some of these symbols. And there's an amazing book called Veve by Milo Rougeau, who was a French anthropologist in the 30s and 40s and 50s. He sent all his anthropology students out into the countryside and the cities in Haiti and did a record of every Veve that they drew. So it's a giant book. You can find it online. He's been dead forever, so I don't mind saying that. (laughs) You can find it online or you can buy it, which it's a a very expensive book. So do what you will. But they would originally draw them with cornmeal or flour, sometimes if it's for the ancestors, you might do it with coffee. And then people dance on the veves in bare feet. You bring the ashe or the energy from the veve up into your body. And then you use that to communicate and bless everybody who's there at the ceremony. So it really is kind of a direct contact way of getting in touch with the loa and learning what their message is and, and being able to help the community with that. Oh, sounds so powerful. Yeah, and now people use them as all different things. You know, um, I have a couple of Veve tattoos. Sally Ann Glassman, who's the co-author of the New Orleans Voodoo Tarot with my priest, Louis Martinet. She was a tattoo artist at one point. She's one of the most famous voodoo queens here in the city now. And she has a whole bunch of Veves and they're all over the place. I like the idea of using them as tattoos. I've met some of her students who said they used the tattoo as a way of giving up their own blood instead of doing animal sacrifice because a lot of houses now don't do animal sacrifice, but they still wanted to have that bond and that connection with the Loa or Arisha. But again, it's not, it's not taken lightly. I, I remember I had my first one and it was Marie Laveau and Louis Martinet was there with me when I got the tattoo. I was like, this is great. My priest is here. I'm going to get a tattoo of Marie Laveau. It's going to be wonderful. And it's the only one that it ever happened to. It keloided. I'm a black person. So we get Mm. keloid scars, which are like kind of humpy scars. And you don't want that on a tattoo at all. But where she swelled up was her head and her heart. And Lewis was talking to me about that's really what Marie Laveau was. She had a heart. She was so compassionate. She did so many kind of, she let, you know, indigenous people run a tent city in her backyard because they had nowhere else to go. They were getting displaced from their homes, from gentrification. She made food for prisoners. She was such a, you know, ground, whatever, ground level, grassroots kind of 
philanthropist that gave back to the community on every level. So that was her heart. And then she used her head or we wouldn't still be talking about her right now. She was a successful businesswoman. She did readings for Queen Victoria, they said. So in a way, the way my tattoo came out, it got messed up in the exact right way that it needed to get messed up. But I I say (laughs) that now just so people know if they're going to rush out and get a tattoo the same way that if people are going to rush out and get a Chinese character on them, that it really does does have an implication beyond just putting something pretty on you. And, and mm-hmm. I hope people think about that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, and this is kind of getting me around, I guess, in a roundabout way to a question I wanted to ask you too, about just working with the energies of the Orishas at Aloha. Um, oh, from, from, from these ATRs. Yay. Yes. Term for me. I yeah. mean, is there, do you think it's appropriate for everyone to do this? I, I'm thinking here of cultural appropriation, for example, and um, sure, you know, people who are not of African descent, who might nonetheless feel drawn to Oshun, or I, I, what's your I think, what's your thought on that? I think if they do it within the confines of the tradition, then that's great. I think that normally what I recommend to those people is that they get a reading. And before everybody emails me, because I get this email every day, oh, there's nobody in my town. I traveled from Brooklyn to New Orleans. I was here five times last year before I finally moved. So I could see my priestess, so I could leave offerings, so I could connect with the city. So you're not necessarily going to find somebody in your backyard to go get a reading from. You might have to get in the car <laughs> or get on the train or whatever and make the pilgrimage because it's, n- it's not necessarily somebody in your backyard. And even if you have somebody in your backyard, maybe it's not the right person for you. Mm. So what I usually recommend with people do that is that, you know, light a candle and ask for a teacher, light a candle and ask for guidance, get the reading, see if you're supposed to be involved in the tradition. Because even if somebody thinks that no white people should join the tradition ever, every accomplished practitioner out there knows that there are people who have gotten readings. And for some reason, there are some people who are supposed to initiate and join the tradition. But it's not it's not easy. And I think this scares people away a lot, but I I don't mean to scare people. It's because being in the tradition allows an ease of things. Like I mentioned before, I know that I'm Omo Oshun. So that means I know I need to be careful about eating certain things. I have another friend who ended up getting initiated and they had to give up coffee. So for them, they loved coffee. They had coffee like I do, you know, 10 times a day. But it also turned out at the same time they found that out, there were medical issues that they had that meant that they probably shouldn't be drinking five cups of coffee every day. So it's this kind of thing where, yes, it's hard to have sacrifices. It might be hard to leave off, remember to leave offerings every day or every month. But ultimately what it does is make your life easier. It's not there to be stupid or silly or just troublesome it's there to help your life. And, and, you know, who knows what would have happened if my friend kept drinking coffee, they might not still be alive now. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it turns out they're an Omo Oshun too. And they were telling me that the way the reading comes out is either it's bad for your health and you might, you know, stroke out or have a heart attack or something, or someone's going to poison your coffee, just like all the rest of the Oshun stories. So it's better because coffee is so hard to hide things. And so it's better if you know this, you know, uh, I, I, recently, unfortunately, learned that my Haitian mambo, Grobani Devlin, passed. And she was such an influence on me. She was a master drummer and a Harvard-trained minister. And uh, 
she had a UU ministry for some time. But before I met her, I was sort of, you know, again, traveling a thousand miles to go to New Orleans and I couldn't really afford that. And I lit a candle and I prayed real hard. And I also had some other very difficult circumstances in my life. And I think the universe finally smiled on me. And even though I was in the middle of nowhere teaching Tarot 101 at a UU church, the director brought me in and said, hey, we got a new minister for the church and she's a grown mambo from Haiti. And she gave me my first Haitian initiations. So the universe, if you're supposed to move forward, will make it easier for you. Not crazy easy, but easier <laughs> for you. And mm -hmm. the only thing I don't like to see is people deciding that they can make it up. You know, oh, mm. well, you know, I know the crazy author who told me, oh, well, I decided to throw a coral necklace into the Hudson River for Oshun and she'll give me a husband. It's like, that's not how this works. You know, maybe you're not supposed to have a husband right now. Maybe you're supposed to be focusing on something else. And that's what having a teacher will really point you in that right direction and, and help you get on your proper path because everybody's path isn't the same. And working with someone will help you find that out. And I'm so proud of my God kids because, you know, when they first came to me they were much younger a lot of them have been with me 10 15 years now so I've really watched them grow and go from having situations where they were at the bottom of what they were doing to really being successful you know as happy as anybody can be at this time human beings that really work together and and that's something that makes me so proud of them mm. well I, I I know we're I think we're getting close to time here, but I, I wanted to ask you, um, I, and this is something I've been doing with some of my interviews lately too, is it's trying to take our conversation and really place it in the, this exact moment that we're having in time, you know, and I guess it's for me and you, we're here in the U S there's, but we're in the middle of a pandemic. There's, you know, I don't know. I don't, I don't need to read the litany to you, right? We're, we're living this. Right. We know, we, we know what the world yes, is like these days. Know. Yeah, we do know. We do. And so I'm wondering if you, see or sense or even interpret it in this way of like particular energies from, um, you know, Orishas or Loas or Loa. It's not Loas, right? It's Loa. It's Loa. Right? Okay. Yeah. If you sense well, any of that Well, actually in, in Creole, it yeah. would be Loa Yo, but nobody oh. says that. <laughs> oh, I kind of like that. Loa Yo. Just okay. In, yeah. Just in case I have any Creole Haitian speakers out there, that's what it would be. <laughs> but people don't say that because usually when they're saying it, it's, you know, whatever in an English context. So they Got say it. Loa. Yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, I don't know. I'm wondering if you're seeing it or sensing any of particular energy that's really amplified or uh, it's coming forward as a teacher for us collectively at this time. No, does that make sense? Yes, I think that. I think that there's definitely, certainly coming from all my feminine ancestors, and that doesn't matter whether it, they were African or not, there's this sense of, yes, it's happening, and yes, it's very challenging. I'm not going to say difficult or terrible or any of those other words because I don't want to bring that energy in. Challenging is okay mm -hmm. as far as I'm concerned, <laughs> but they all had their times that were challenging. I remember growing up with a story from my grandmother about how she had to cook dinner for her whole family and she was four years old. And I look back and if I count, like she made a roast chicken dinner during the 1918 pandemic for her whole family you know so it's it's not that they're saying what 
what we're going through isn't rough. Of course it's rough, but they've done it before. Yeah. So at least it makes me personally feel like I'm not alone. And I think just keeping that in your mind and remembering that, no, we're not alone. This is something that has happened to our ancestors and they survived and, and they thrived and they got through it and they ended up on the other side of it or we wouldn't be here today. So we can end up on the other side of it and hopefully glean something from their strength moving forward. And the other thing I think that I'm getting very clear from all the goddess energy is, is that, you know, what do you have really? Yes, we don't have, you know, the holidays are going to be coming up and we don't have the luxury of spending that time with our families. But dot, 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 most of us do have the luxury of having the technology to still see our loved ones. You know, a lot of us hopefully are fortunate enough to still have, you know, safety and shelter. And if we're lucky enough, our health still, you know, so if we can get through this, then there will be something on the other side that's hopefully better and different. And what is it making us focus on this? This is kind of how I reverse engineer all my spiritual happenings. You know, what am I allowed to do now that I couldn't do before, you know, and no, it's not, there were a bunch of things I could do before, but now it allows me the time. <laughs> It allows me, everybody, I'm laughing because everybody's all of a sudden just discovering how to cook or grow things in their <laughs> garden and stuff right. like that, which is stuff I did my whole life. So, you know, I never thought like flowers were going to be out of the, <laughs> the big box, you know, hardware store once it started to be a pandemic. But it's just really reconnecting with all those basic things that we are now have the time to do and are afforded that kind of connection in a different way. Obviously, we know it's healthier if we, you know, make all our own food and don't buy things that are horrendously processed. You know, the science has proven that being around plants, being around animals, all of these things help us be healthier. So now we can do that in a way that we couldn't do before. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I love that. I, I went for a walk in my favorite um, grove of redwood trees right when the whole pandemic started and uh, was just sitting there, you know, just listening. I, I like to go to the trees and listen. And, you know, the message that I got, I felt from my own ancestors was very clear. They were literally pulling my shoulders down my back, like telling me to stand up straight and tall and that, yeah. nah, 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 nah. like this is, we, we've done this. You, we, know yes. how to, we know how to handle this. And so do you. Yes. And yes. It was, yes. It was very powerful and very helpful. Yeah, yeah. And I, I think too, for me, really, this, this refocusing on, you know, we all have to have pods now, you know, we all have to, okay, these are the people <laughs> that are close to me. And these are the people that I've chosen to weather the storm with, literally, you know, but for me, it's a beautiful thing, too, because now I know that, oh, okay, you know, now I can experience these people in a deep and meaningful way, where before I probably took them for granted, you know, because it, it wasn't, oh, I'm only allowed to have these five people in my life on a, on a, you know, day-to-day -day basis. But now that I have these five people, I'm just so grateful and so thankful for them. And, and we can help each other in ways that we just were too busy to help each other before, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Mm. It actually feels like a really nice positive note to, uh, to, wrap things up on. Um, I want to thank you so much for your time, Lilith. I really appreciate you joining me today. And I also, I know that you, you've got lots of stuff going on. Um, so it, 
anything you want to share with the listeners here about what maybe what you've got coming up? Yeah, I know. There's so much going on over here. <laughs> <laughs> here I am talking about having time, and I, I have very little time these days. But <laughs> I am. Uh, I did just start a new YouTube video show called the Papa Culture Show with my friend Jason Winslade, who's a PhD in performance studies, and I have my master's in cinema and television studies. And we talk about the crossroads of the occult and pop culture. So that's really fascinating. We come out every other week. So I'm going to give you the link for that so you can share it with people. And I'm also organizing a Yule market with a collective of divination and tarot readers that we've started called the priestess power exchange. So there's going to be a lot of good things coming up from us, hopefully an event in the spring and, and definitely this Yule market, which is going to be free for everybody to watch. And there's going to be many classes and performances and stuff like that. So that's great. And then I just announced two days ago that my first book voodoo and Afro-Caribbean paganism is going to be re-released by Warlock press. So people can see that sometime uh, next year year hopefully in the beginning of the year so Mm. lots of exciting things going on over here yeah amazing yeah so i'll make sure i've got show notes or in the show notes i've got links to um everything that you're talking about and um yeah lila thank you so much for being here i really appreciate it oh thank you it was wonderful it was a joy yeah and thanks to all you guys for listening to and um As always, you know, if you like the show, you can subscribe, you can give it a five-star review on iTunes, you can tell all your friends about it, you can do all three of those things if you want. And just a heads up, so I think we've got one more uh, episode that's going to be coming up before the end of the year, and then I'm probably going to take a little break and regroup. So I'd love to hear from you if, you know, you've got feedback for me on the show, if there are guests that you'd love to hear from in the future or topics you want me to dive into, um, you can contact me. My email address is liz at home to her.com. And yeah, till I talk to you again, uh, have a wonderful day. is hosted by me, Liz Kelly. You can visit me online at hometoher.com where you can find show notes and other episodes. You can read articles about the sacred feminine and you'll also find a link to join the Home to Her Facebook group for lots more discussion and exploration of her. You can also follow me on Instagram at home to her to keep up to date with the latest episodes. Thanks so much for joining us and we'll see you back here soon. 